Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped to join us today to have Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, she's a reader, a writer, a professor. Um, she's the author of The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis, uh, and many other books, including what we're talking about today on Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. So Karen, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, and I'm doing great. It's been a while since we've talked, so just update us, Karen. Talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, um, things like that. Sure. Um, well, I um, have for many years been an English professor, and I've just transitioned into uh, writing and speaking full-time um, and doing a lot of podcasts and talking about my book, so thanks for having me. Um, I live in Virginia with my husband and dogs, and um, he's a school teacher. And so I just, you know, just look out at the mountains, go running, write about it, <laughs> take inspiration from, from nature uh, and uh, enjoy that. So. Yeah, that's super cool, Karen. Uh, so talk about like, we're talking about this book on reading well. Um, what's like the inspiration behind this book? Like, where did the idea for this book come from? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, of course, as I mentioned, I was an English professor for about 30 years. So books are my life. I mean, they were my life even before I became an English professor. I just grew up reading books, loving books, um, loving great literature. And um, so when I was writing this book, um, I, you know, I, this is really, this is kind of how I teach. I, I love to um talk about the way literature works and what it shows us about life. Um, my first book, Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, is kind of a literary memoir where it's very personal to me, uh, talking about the way that books have shaped my life. And when I set out to write this book, I wanted to do kind of the same thing. But I've also, um, in my you know later adult Christian life, I've been heavily influenced by the work of James K.A. Smith, if you know him. Um, he you know, follows Augustine in talking about the way that habits and practices and rituals form us and shape our desires. And so being influenced by his work and thinking about how literature works, I wanted to talk about how literature has this formative um, effect on us. And virtues are kind of the classical approach to character formation. And so I just, I set out to write a book about great literary works that I loved, but wanted to bring into it virtue ethics and character formation. So just ended up writing a book that's sort of every chapter is a different virtue and a different work of literature and how that work of literature um, teaches us virtue and forms virtue in us, whether through a negative or positive example. So that's kind of how the book came about. That's super awesome. So what does it mean? Like, like the book is called On Reading Well. Um, what does it mean? Like when we're thinking about like, what does it mean to read well? Hmm. That is a really an important question for today, because I think we are immersed in this late modern age with words all the time, whether they are words on our social media that we're reading, words in emails, or a lot of us, you know, working from home, we're reading things on our computer screens all day. And we're developing 
practices of reading not very well um, because we often have to read things just quickly, get to the point. Um, I mean, we shouldn't necessarily be um, analyzing emails as though they're literary masterpieces, but we, which is it's fine to just read things quickly. Even news articles are things we often just skim. They're written so that they can be skimmed easily. But when we do that a lot, we actually develop a habit of reading that is superficial, that is um, shallow and quick. And so when we pick up something like a great work of literature, a poem, uh, the Bible, if we approach those texts in the same way that we approach most everything else that we're reading all day long, we're not reading well. Um, and so I do spend actually the, uh, the whole introductory chapter talking about you know, some of the obstacles to reading well, what it means to read well, um, why we have to develop a different practice and, and read in a different way when we're, we're in trying to engage a text as opposed to just skim it for information. Um, and that's a key distinction is that there there's some kinds of reading um, that we do that really is just for information, but there's other kinds of reading, again, literature, poetry, drama, the Bible, any great text um, that we read not for information, but for formation. And um, to me, you know, just in, I'd say this in the book, but in countless conversations I've had following the book, the number one thing that I think people struggle with is slowing down, just reading slowly and attentively um, you know, letting the words just seep in, pausing, thinking about them, reading reflectively. Um, that's a very, very different habit and practice than the other kinds of reading that we do. So that's the first step to reading well, is just slow down. Um, we wouldn't walk into an art museum and kind of zoom around the room and look at the paintings really fast. <laughs> we would you know, maybe we don't look at all of them, but we, when we look at a painting, we stop and we look at it and we notice not just what the picture is of, but how the artist achieved the effect of the painting, how the artist used light and shadow and texture and placement and all of these things. Even if we don't know anything about art, we still would look at it attentively to take in everything that the picture has to give us and reading well is similar in the sense that we slow down and we pay attention um, to not just what the words say, but how they convey that meaning. So when we're talking about like reading well, for example, um, I've been reading like The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, well, I guess I, I was reading it and I took a break and then I kept reading it. And now I'm on, I'm on a break right now trying to read some other books. And I'm like, good grief. I'm on like page like 200 out of like over a thousand. Um, but like when we're thinking about reading well, it's not just like I'm reading the book and consuming the information. I'm like, okay, this is the story. That's that. But like really trying to understand like what is the author doing? Um, and you, I like how you use the word formation, like reading even a book like that um, and seeing how it can help form me as like a human being. Is that what you're getting at here? Exactly. I mean, I, I spoke about reading well in very general terms. And then when we started to, to get into specific works of literature and different genres of literature, then we can think about how that particular work or that particular genre works in a different way. Um, I haven't read The Count of Monte Cristo. It's not my favorite story. I've seen it in, you know, dramatized on the stage and so forth. Um, but 
it is a long book and even you know a, a good literary work is that is long like that is long for a reason right not just to to be long for the length's sake and so when you're immersed in something like that you want to pay attention to how the effect of the length of the story makes a different um, difference. I mean, short stories are short for a reason. They achieve a very different effect. And so paying attention to the shape and the genre and the mode of the work is, is important as, as well to just what the story is saying. So what is it like? Why is it important for like us to read well? Like, why shouldn't we, especially like you talked about like the age of like, like it's just like information overload. When you, I think about like social media and I can just go right here and we're doing this podcast and try to sneak in like, oh, apnews.com and kind of read the news right now. Or we're just consuming, consuming, consuming information. Mm -hmm. um, why is it important that we're like reading well? Hmm. That, that is a good question because, I mean, again, obviously I'm biased. I love literature. I teach English literature. I want everyone to read literature. So some people might be saying, well, you know, that's not me. I don't really care about it. Why should I read well? Um, and think about it. Even if we're not literary people and we don't like fiction or poetry or drama, we are still people of language. We are people of the word. We traffic in words all day long and we are using words and language. We are processing our day through language. Um, if something happens to us just throughout the course of our ordinary day, so much of how we understand and communicate that experience depends on how we tell the story about it. Um, I mean, we could even, you know, there, there are whole modes of counseling and therapy that have to do with how we use words to, to process and tell a story. Um, it change, it can change almost everything about how we experience something in terms, you know, depending on how we tell it. And so just simply understanding the nature of language and how language works and paying attention to how other people use language. It's part of being human. It's part of being, um, a you know, a developed um, person. And it's part of even just being a good citizen, because we are living in an age in which, you know, language is being manipulated and used, and to whip people up and polarize them. Uh, and if we aren't paying attention to that, we're much more susceptible to the manipulations of language. Hmm. And it's like, I think, like, when you're stepping into these stories, as you get in the book, you're stepping into the world, um, where it's not just like, we think about like, I don't know. I think about this as like sometimes we think about like how should we live, um, and it's like oh like we should not steal because it's in the Ten Commandments, um, or maybe we should like try to follow Jesus uh, because that's what the Bible clearly teaches. But like when you're reading these books, um, it may not like clearly like give you like hey this is what you should do or this is what you shouldn't do. But we can kind of like understand and like draw these out from stories. Uh, is that a good way of thinking about it? That's an excellent way of thinking about it. And of course, we have the best example of that in Jesus when he told parables, right? I mean, of course, Jesus preached and he gave the Sermon on the Mount. And so he engaged in, in language in that more didactic teaching way. But some of the most powerful lessons that he taught were told in the form of of parables and stories. And the really frustrating part about a lot of those parables and stories is the meaning is not always straightforward or clear or, or oftentimes it's like a kind of a moral of the story that we don't like, like who likes the parable of the talents, right? When all the workers get paid the same, regardless of how much work they did, like that's a really hard kind of story to process, but it's through processing that lesson as a story 
um, that it becomes more real to us. And so um, that's just how stories work. We are storied creatures in that way. And, and, and I don't want to get too far down this conversation before I, I pause and say, uh, you know, that, that also stories are just enjoyable. They are things that we should engage in um, for the sheer pleasure of it. So even though we're talking about kind of theoretical and philosophical and theological reasons for reading and the lessons we can learn and all that's good. Also, just stories are wonderful. We just, we spend our lives telling stories, even if we don't read great literature. Um, we, we tell stories um, all day long to ourselves and to each other. And it's just part of what it means to be human. So what I want to do now, Karen, is in the book, you talk about like three different kinds of virtues. Um, and just let's just kind of like give like a broad survey here um, for people like these different virtues. Um, so first off in the book, you talk about like the cardinal virtues. Um, what are these and like what inspires the cardinal virtues? Yeah, so the um, virtue ethics has a really long history. Um, it goes back to Aristotle, at least, if not further. And then there's a Christian tradition of virtues, there's a Roman tradition of virtues, the more contemporary understanding of virtue with different qualities. And so uh, if you do, you know, even just a little bit of research into it, you will find that there are lots of different lists of virtues and different ways to categorize them. So one of the first things that I had to do in just sort of researching and setting up the framework for this book, once I decided I wanted to discuss virtues in literature, is I had to figure out kind of which lists to go by, uh, because there are so many. Um, but I think, you know, so so the first section is about the cardinal virtues. Now, this is obviously drawn from um, Christian tradition. Uh, so there are, so the, the, there are what are called cardinal virtues are called that because they're considered sort of the foundational ones, the ones that all other virtues spring from. Um, and uh, this is just a long standing tradition. Um, and so it's not a list that I made up, but cardinal is kind of the word actually um, means hinge. So it's like all of the other virtues hinge on these and they are prudence, temperance, justice, and courage. That's a, those are the traditional four cardinal virtues. Um, and that's sort of the foundation for virtue ethics, particularly in the Christian tradition. So when we're talking about cardinal virtues, where do you see these ideas like in the literature? Um, where are they coming up? Well, I mean, I think one of the things I try to do in this book, even though I pick a different work of literature or writer for each virtue, what I really want for the reader to walk away with is kind of the ability to think about these virtues and see them in many other places, other works of literature, as well as in life. And so I've kind of presented, I hope, what is more like a model for how to think about it. And so I just picked really some of my favorite works of literature, the ones that I know the best, um, and kind of mapped them out with the virtues. And so uh, it, what's interesting to me is, is how some of these virtues are um, very quaint and old fashioned in a way. And so part of what I do is kind of explain what they are and explain their tradition, and then talk about the works of literature that, that, um, that I think exhibit them. Um, like prudence is a word and a concept, which is the first one that's, you know, one of the first cardinal virtues. Um, prudence is a word, I don't think we even really talk about it very much. It's not a very modern word. Uh, and if we do, we often think of it as being like, 
a prude or prudish. It's a negative thing when really prudence is, is practical wisdom. It's like being wise, but being wise in a very realistic way, like on, on the ground kind of is how I put it. And so one of my um, books that I love to teach because my specialty is 18th century British literature is this comic epic um, novel called The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling. Uh, it's a little bit less, uh, not quite as long as The Count of Monte Cristo coming in at about, you know, eight or 900 pages, I think, with lots of footnotes in the, in the best edition. Um, but it's really just kind of a rollicking story of a young man who's full of life and, um, and he's, he's an orphan. And so he can't marry the girl that he wants to marry because he's just, you know, he doesn't have you know, legitimate parentage, at least, you know, I wouldn't want to give anything away, but, um, you know, it's a comic story and the whole story is sort of a, almost like an allegory of this young man needing to find prudence and to act more prudently as he matures. Um, and so, you know, the, the woman that he is um, in love with and is pursuing, her name is Sophia, which means wisdom. So in a way, he's literally, as he's pursuing Sophia, he's pursuing wisdom. Um, and he just has many adventures in doing that. And so that's a great work of classic literature, not one that a lot of people read anymore. And I try to kind of give a, give an idea of how the story goes, but more importantly, how it teaches us um, what prudence looks like. Also in the book, Karen, you talk about like theological virtues. Um, what are these theological virtues and what inspires them? Hmm. So this draws most heavily from Aquinas. Um, in the, you know, the pagan classical tradition, virtues are seen as excellences in character um, that you know, can be achieved by human beings. And, and actually just to kind of backtrack a little bit, it is, I mean, I really think the classical tradition has a lot to teach us. Um, Aristotle, when he talked about virtue, he taught, he really, it was synonymous with excellence. So he was just basically looking at, well, what makes an excellent person? Um, and he would point out the qualities that makes a, a human being excellent is, you know, the prudence, temperance, courage, justice, all of those things. Um, those are things that humans can do and at their best achieve well. Um, so even, you know, so we use that word virtue in other ways. We'll, we'll say like the virtue of um, a saw is that it's sharp and cuts well. That's its virtue. That's how it's excellent. We don't measure a saw, you know, we wouldn't use a, a saw like a hammer and then say, oh, it's a terrible saw because it's not doing what a hammer should do. So when we're talking about virtue, um, again, whether from the, the uh, Christian or non-Christian tradition, we're saying, well, what makes a human being excellent? And so the theological virtues are the ones that draw specifically from the Christian tradition. They are, um, and to anyone familiar with the Bible, these will sound very familiar. They are faith, hope, and love. And one of the differences between these virtues and the ones that we see throughout the sort of humanist tradition is that these virtues aren't just ones that we achieve by our own human strength and nature. Now we can, we can cultivate them. And that's kind of what I talk about. But just to have them to begin with is actually supernatural. They are supernatural in the sense that their source is in God. God gives us the ability as human beings 
first of all, to have faith. Faith is a gift. He, he gives us the ability to have hope and he gives us the ability to have love. And, and here I'm talking about, you know, agape love, the kind of love that we have for one another as brothers and sisters and human beings. And so that is the thing that makes the theological virtues different from um, the classical tradition is because that there is a supernatural element in it. We can work and consciously and deliberately intentionally develop those things. We can work to make our faith stronger. We can work to, you know, to have hope and to cultivate love. Um, but their origins are in God and therefore they are, they transcend our own human ability. So what about then like the heavenly virtues, Karen? Um, so we have the theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and love. Uh, I believe you said, and it's based off of Aquinas. Uh, what about like the heavenly virtues? What are these and what's inspiring them as, as you wrote this book? Yeah. So again, this also comes from um, the, the Christian tradition uh, as opposed to the, the pagan classical tradition. And there are actually seven heavenly virtues, but some of them are also overlap with the cardinal virtues. So I didn't treat them twice, but they're considered the heavenly virtues or, you know, more in more contemporary language, just simply the ones that are, are part of Christian teaching and, and tradition. Um, so those are chastity, diligence, patience, kindness, um, and humility. And again, with each of these, I go through and define them, give some of the, you know, the leading um, theological and philosophical insights on them, and then talk about um, the stories in which we can see them sort of embodied. Um, and one of the things that, that we see with each of the virtues is that, um, is that each one is a moderation between an excess and a deficiency. Um, and so, so, and some of this gets, uh, it can get lost in translation because we often don't have um, words in modern English that correspond to some of the ideas that are more ancient than modern English. So for example, um, when we think about the virtue of courage, one of the, um, one of the cardinal virtues, um, we don't really have a word for um, its excess. We, we think that courage it would always be good in any amount, but if we have too much courage apart from the other virtues, that can actually be recklessness. Um, whereas if we have too little, we, we have a better word to describe that, and that's cowardice. So we know what the absence of courage looks like, but it's hard for us to think about what the excess of courage looks like, um, because we, we don't think of it as anything that would we should could have too much of. But if it's not tied to the other virtues, um, then it it does become a vice, which is recklessness. Um, and I bring that up because the most important virtue, I think, and it's the last one that I talk about in the book, is humility. Because the corresponding vice that um, that opposes humility is pride. And there's a long tradition of how pride is kind of the first sin. Um, and in English, we just don't really have a word because there is a healthy kind of pride. There, there is a, a kind of pride that we should take in, you know, in, in ourselves, just being made in the image of God and the work we do and so forth. Um, but we don't, you know, that word, 
that word and the wrong kind of pride don't necessarily have different words in the English language. We have to take some time to kind of unpack it and explain it. Um, and so one way of thinking about humility in terms of um, excess and deficiency is to is is in terms of the self like we can think too little of ourselves and that's self-effacement or self-degradation and that's a, a vice or we can think too highly of ourselves which ends up being pride and humility is that perfect you know middle place in between humility is you know i it, one definition that i use is like is the humility is the right judgment of ourselves within the viewpoint of God, right? He doesn't think too little or too much of ourselves, and we should view ourselves from his perspective. We're not him, but we're also not the insects either. Like he values and esteems us just as we should value and esteem ourselves and each other, uh, but we also shouldn't think of ourselves as taking his place or you know, uh, being, knowing more or being more important than he is. So Karen, I'm wondering, like, like, I think some people might be listening to this, um, and I think would have a desire to read well, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but like, how, what, like what kind of habits help you? Cause it's like easy to be like, I, like, I think that is okay. I'm, I'm me. I'm not an English professor. I don't have all mm -hmm. this amazing knowledge of like, uh, all these different like virtues and everything that's whatnot. Um, like what habits can help you and help others to like read well themselves? Oh, thank, I'm so glad you asked that. So um, you already um, pointed one out yourself earlier in the program when you talked about how you're reading The Count of Monte Cristo and you're just working your way through it and putting it down sometimes and picking it back up. That's actually a really good habit, um, that sort of persistence and diligence. I mean, obviously, if you had all the time in the world and didn't have any other responsibilities, you know, you could just sit down and read the whole thing from cover to cover. You probably can't do that. And maybe maybe if you tried to do that, you wouldn't enjoy it as much. And so you're just kind of sticking with it. Um, many times reading a, a good work of literature does take a lot of time. And it's easy for people to say, well, it's going to take me forever to read this, so I'm not going to do it. Well, in fact, if you read 10 or 15 minutes a day of a good work of literature, you know, then by the end of, you know, a week or a month or a year, you'll have read a really good amount of some good literature and you will be better off in your in your mind, in your thinking, in your experience, in your enjoyment than you would have before. So that's one thing is I think that people can think of, think it's never going to get done so they don't start. And that's that's not a good way to think about it. Another um, obstacle I find is that people um, think, you know, it, it's hard for them perhaps, or it's not, they're not good at reading literature. And that's where virtue comes in, because just like any other habit or practice or skill, we get better at it the more we do it. Um, and so the more you read, the more you focus read slowly, pay attention, the better you get at it. And, and I, you know, I say that as someone um, who, you know, lived for a long time before we had social media and, and phones in our pockets. Um, and I know what it was like to read when I could sit down and read all day and get lost in a book. And I know how hard it is to read now with a brain that's kind of developed in other ways. I see the difference 
but I can also tell when I slow my mind down, I put the other things away and I immerse myself for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and that can turn into 20 or 40 minutes or whatever. And, and my brain, you know, the other kinds of parts of my brain kick in. And so it, it is a matter of habit and practice. And so you can, think you're not good at it and maybe you're not good at it, but you can get better. I mean, it's like walking and, you know, the more you do it, the stronger you get. Reading is a very basic skill. Um, and when you pick up a few of the, like, again, slowing down, I think is the most important, um, then you will get better at it. And the other thing is there are so many great works of literature, like just make sure you get pick one up that you enjoy. Like you don't have to read um, something that you just are not enjoying at all. And I have, you know, I, because of my age and my time pressures and my experience, I, I cannot tell you now, I used to feel guilty about this. I don't anymore. I can get halfway or three quarters of the way through a book and just give up on it and just say, you know what? My life is too short. I'm going to pick up something else. Um, now there is a point, you know, sometimes I'm like, I, I've invested so much. I want to at least finish it. But if it's not that high of a quality, if I'm just reading it because I, it's something I, you know, that people were talking about and I think, oh, I, I'm interested in this. I just, I, I don't, I give, I don't give more of my time than, than I want to. And I pick up something else that is better. So there are lots of practical ways to approach this, but it does take a desire. It does take intention. It does take saying, you know what, I want to read some better literature this year. If it's just one book, great. If it's, you know, if it's, you know, a poem a week, great. Um, it, you know, I think we all benefit from engaging in any great art of any form. Um, and we also, so we should do that, but also there's this particular resonance with, with the written word, um, and a way it, it kind of balances, uh, all the other words we're exposed to every day. Do you have like particular, like maybe like, uh, page goals per day or like certain times you always read per day? Like, is there anything like that that helps you like to stay consistent with reading? I actually do not. I, <laughs> I, I, some people do. I don't keep any records or goals um, or numbers. I'm not a numbers person. I know for some people that helps them. And I, you know, I, some people use like an app like Goodreads and that tracks it for them. I don't do that. Um, I just have piles of books everywhere. When I'm doing research, I do try to take, I try to be a little bit more organized and take notes and so forth and keep track of what I'm reading. I'm writing a book now. So I'm, 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 making notes and keeping track of what I read, but I am a completely undisciplined reader and I just um, read whenever I can, whenever I'm not, you know, writing, writing takes away from reading or grading or, um, you know, emailing. I seem to spend a lot of my days reading and <laughs> responding to emails. So. Yeah. Emails are, there's something. Um, Karen, anything else you want to say about like reading well and habits, like anything that you think would be relevant to share here that we haven't brought up? Oh, yeah, there were a couple of other things that I lost track of. One is um, there's so many great resources out now with the internet and the World Wide Web, lots of great podcasts and online book clubs and lectures. So if you feel like you are, you know, a complete rookie, you don't know where to start, you don't know what you're doing, um, close pods, 
Close Reads podcast is a great place to start. They kind of journey through a book chapter by chapter and you can read along. Um, that's a great resource. You can hear lectures from professors on YouTube that can give you kind of an entree. Of course, there's Audible. You can listen to books. It's a different kind of experience. Um, but I think that's that's a great way to experience as well. And also just like slowing down to read, you should, again, I'm not talking about information, but when you're listening to literary works, you know, doing it on high speed is kind of defeating the purpose, I think. Um, so listen to it slowly. Um, and so there's lots of uh, resources online, also in-person book clubs, um, in-person, you know, online book clubs, but also like people are, everywhere I'm seeing are, are starting book clubs that there's nothing like discussing a work of literature together uh, and learning from one another. We think of reading as a solitary activity because when we're doing it, we're just doing it alone. But there's so much that can be opened up when we sit down and discuss it with other people. Um, there's also great introductions to so many works of literature um, that are published and um, available from the Trinity Forum. Um, little excerpts with background uh, to the readings and questions and, and so forth, that get themes that are um, brought out that can help you. So that all this to say that there are many, many resources for anyone who just wants to kind of learn how to read better, learn which works are worth their time, and talk in community with other people about books. I think that's a valuable practice. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. Um, you said at the beginning, like you're very concise and clear. And I felt like we just talked like it's only been 33 minutes, but I feel like I've got so much information um, and there's just a little bit of time. Uh, anything like anything else you want to share and how can people like follow you, connect with you, things like that? Yeah, no, thanks for asking that. And I, you know, I, I will mention, um, since we're talking about books, that I have edited a six volume series of classics. Um that uh, give the, the, exactly the kind of information that I was talking about, kind of an introduction and what to look for in reading it, and lots of discussion questions as you read through the text um, that you can work through on your own or a book club. So the six volumes in that set are Frankenstein, Jane Eyre, Heart of Darkness, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, The Scarlet Letter, and Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Those are like all some of my favorites. Um, it's like having a little book club in your hand. The book, the whole book is there, all the questions and things like that. So I'll, I'll just say that's something that can people might find helpful. Um, they're published by B&H. You can find them anywhere books are sold. And you can find me um, on Instagram, Karen Swallow Pryor, or on XKS Pryor. Um, and... Uh, threads too. So you can find me out on the internet at my website, karenswallowprior.com, but mainly just find me, you know, in these books. I, I hope that you will, you know, find one or two and enjoy them and that I can, you know, tarry with you through these works of great literature. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you and your time and just everything you're doing. Um, you pushed me to really like read like 
widely and more carefully and just try to look at all these like great works that like I looked at English class in high school. And I'm like, why on earth am I reading these things? I'm like, and now I have so much more appreciation because of people like you for those works. Mm. Um, thank you for coming on today. Um, I encourage people to follow Karen. I'll leave a link down below to follow her as long as to the book. Um, and that's that. This is here in apologetics. If you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. Um, and yeah, Karen, one last time, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate you and your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you have a good one, and God bless. We'll catch you later.